This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.36, Implications, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan and the scourge of spoilers. And I'm Nina, ready to speculate wildly about the future of Gundam. Momosu Breakdown is made possible by the support of 91 patrons. Are you, are you doing S- snaps. appreciative snaps? <laughs> appreciative snaps. I don't know if that will work. (laughs) Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patron, Matt S. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord and other bonus content, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. And I would like to thank some listeners who wrote reviews for the podcast, including Diego B, Satch TC, Action Awesome, and Felt. Thank you all for your reviews. They are very helpful, very flattering, and we feel really fired up to make the podcast every time we read one of them. This week, we discuss implications for the future of Gundam from the perspective of someone who just saw the first series. A voice actor reviews the original voice work and the dub. A fan helps us understand why Italy was the first foreign country to air Gundam and Flying Grizzly digs deep on the art that inspired the Zaku. Oh no, that's different than what we promised last week. (laughs) (laughs) These research-heavy episodes are hard to plan, since we don't really know how long any of the pieces will be when we try to sort out a list. But not to fret, we will get to all of those topics eventually. So, Nina, you may not know this, but after the Gundam series that we just watched, they actually made more Gundam. (gasps) Truly? It's true. (laughs) No foolin'. A couple of years after they made first Gundam, they made the compilation movies, which we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks. And then a few years after that, after Tomino and the whole Gundam crew had gone off to do other projects, the stars aligned and they came back to make a sequel to first Gundam. Now, Tom stopped me last time as I was starting to speculate and talk about the likely futures of all these characters. (laughs) So we're talking about the ending, and unlike the way a lot of shows would end it now, First Gundam doesn't jump forward and show us everyone's post-war life. They just show us everyone together and happy and then tell us the war ended shortly thereafter. Uh, And as we talked about with our friend Char... (laughs) After the war is when things actually get very complicated for a lot of these characters. That's when you really need to start worrying about Amaro. Because while he is a soldier and busy with the war, it sort of holds him together. It's now that he doesn't have to fight anymore that his cumulative experience trauma really sets in. Just think about it. He's got no home to go back to. No family but this crew. 
generally speaking, peacetime armies, when they exist at all, are considerably smaller than uh, wartime armies. It seems highly unlikely that all of these characters stay on with the Federation military, and even the ones who do stay on, not necessarily with the same ship. I mean, the white base is gone. The white base has been destroyed. Right, but I mean, they wouldn't necessarily put all of them on the same crew, even in in a new ship. And it's hard to imagine... Kai and Hayato and Sela and Fra all deciding that what they really want to be in life is professional soldiers. Yeah. So I do feel like there's a bittersweet note hanging over everything because we see them all together and that's wonderful, but that is also going to change. That is also coming to an end. And the two places that they have in common, the White Base and Side 7, are both uninhabitable at the moment. Right, they're all going to end up on one of the remaining sides, of which there aren't all that many. Or on Earth. Or on Earth. Or the moon, right? There are people on the moon. Yep, there are a number of significant cities on the moon. And doing question mark. Right. The show has never really shown us non-wartime activity. Yeah, I mean, Sayla doesn't really have any family left either. We don't know a whole lot about her life before she joined the crew so we have no idea her background or education Mm -hmm. uh you know we sort of assume amuro might do something with computers or technology but who (laughs) the heck knows yeah uh mirai has connections mirai of everybody mirai is in the best position to go do whatever the heck she wants but i think it's very obvious that do you think mirai is going to go back to side six hook up with cameron bloom again no I think he's probably waiting for her. Probably. I was going to say, though, that I think, you know, like I said, what she wants out of her life now is totally different than what she probably thought she wanted out of her life before. She's experienced an entirely different way of life. And so... And who knows what it was she was running away from that got her to side seven in the first place. Maybe it was Cameron Bloom and an undesirable marriage. Maybe there was more to it than that. So we have a lot of questions about our main cast, and that doesn't even get into the questions about the world. Now, last week I said I was going to give Nina some bare minimum information before I start asking her to speculate about the future of Gundam. So I'll say this, the next series, Zeta Gundam, is going to take place in UC87. Okay, so seven years later. Yep, and it is going to start coming out in 1985, and will finish in 1986. Okay. And I will say, uh, just as a reminder, when Zeta was made, the Gundam compilation movies had been very successful. And so there was a general expectation that the next Gundam was going to be a big hit. But they didn't know for certain that it was going to be. And while this was a sequel to First Gundam, I don't think anyone at the time saw it as the second entry in a sprawling Gundam meta-series. It's worth remembering those kinds of sprawling, branching franchises are way more popular now than they ever were (laughs) back in the day. (laughs) But that's sort of the way a lot of media development goes now. We have the main series, and then we have the sequel, and the spinoff, and the prequel, and the movie, and, you know, all of these tie-ins and this way to extend the the property, the thing, the world. (laughs) But I I can imagine how at the time... You would not be thinking that way. (laughs) (laughs) One other little tidbit that I had spoiled for me by the internet. Internet. uh, Was that I know that Shar and Amaro are both alive. (laughs) 
in Zeta and that they interact with each other in some way. I don't know if that's like a thing that happens throughout the series or just like one time, but I, I have seen them in the same panel. <laughs> so you know that Char and Amuro are in play. Yes. Okay. I also remind you that in Japan of 1985, the economy has continued its upward surge consistent with the 1970s, but we have not yet reached the beginning, at least the formal beginning of what is called the bubble economy of the late 80s. That's going to start about a year after Zeta comes out in 86 or 87. The bubble is most strongly associated with the 90s. So yeah, it would make sense that the bubble economy is really just starting. Right. Though they wouldn't necessarily have known that at the time. Right? Absolutely that's a, not. That's a thing we measure later and we go, oh, <laughs> right. look, at, look at this spike right. in the price of certain assets. That's a bubble. <laughs> exactly. The 80s were, however, a time when foreign investment in Japan was taking off in a huge way. The Japanese export economy was booming. The Japanese high-tech economy was booming. And consequently, a lot of money was pouring into anime. Anime was developing into a prestigious, well-regarded, and artistically dynamic medium at this time. We are right around the release of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and the beginning of the uh, Hayao Miyazaki, Takahata, Studio Ghibli empire. Dynasty, perhaps, is better <laughs> than empire. The Showa emperor still reigns, but will not for very long. Uh, and we are very close, just a few months away, I believe, from the release of the original Famicom, or as we wow. know it in the US, the Nintendo. So you said before you have some questions for me. <laughs> I Bring it. I do. So, first question. Given how the series ends, and given that you already know Shar and Amuro are coming back, which of the first Gundam characters do you think is most likely, or are most likely, to return in the sequel? Or perhaps, which ones are most likely to never be seen again? I think Sela is definitely in the sequel. Uh, I would say Minerva Zabi, except that she's still very young. She's seven years old. So maybe the next one, if it takes place in the same universe. But I feel like the fact that she lives <laughs> is significant. And mm -hmm. why why leave that zombie thread hanging <laughs> unless you want to do something with it later? I don't really expect to see Fra unless it's this kind of like a single scene in an episode or you know, she sort of pops up very quickly as an as an old friend, but who's had a very different life and the lives have diverged. And, you know, in the way that happens as you grow up, like mm -hmm. you don't get to see certain old friends as much as you used to and they're not as much a part of your life anymore. I think I still expect to see Bright. Yes. <laughs> and I would expect to see perhaps not all three, but some combination of Kika, Cats, and Let's. Okay, okay. Is there anyone from the main cast that you think is definitely not coming back besides Fra? I don't really see where Kai fits into things going forward, but I don't know. I liked him so much. And if, <laughs> if he was a character that fans really responded to, they might include him for that reason, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't make sense. Or maybe they make it make sense. I don't know. But given the way Kai's arc went, I don't see him in an ongoing story about what I assume is the build-up to another war and early rumblings of another war or, or a proxy war or, you know, <laughs> okay. more war okay. stuff and politics. Ah, politics. Because we didn't get that much politicking in First Gundam. 
But what we do get is two very divergent philosophies and visions for the future of humanity. Mm. Which sounds like the Cold War. Oh. Maybe, possibly. Oh, how interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I assume you there's going to be... You think that's where be, we're going? Yeah. You think the Cold War would have been on people in Japan's minds in the mid-80s? Uh, yeah, funny how that is. <laughs> well, and with, and with the Korean War and Vietnam War influence thrown in there as well as like part of the Cold War, as mm-hmm, part of mm-hmm. the sort of wars to determine whether or not you know, communism or American capitalism were going to hold sway mm-hmm. in the world. Got it. I should say Western capitalism, not just American, although, you know, arguable. You alluded to this a little bit earlier when you were talking about our friend Shar, who appeared on the show to help us understand Amaro's psychology, and some comments she made about how worried she was about what would happen to Amaro when the war was over, and he lost his sense of purpose. So... What do you think Amuro is going to do after the war? I can picture two things. They're not super compatible. Okay. I could see him staying in the army on sort of the R&D side of things, doing a lot of technological development. It's clearly an interest of his. He clearly has an aptitude. Matilda was supply corps. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there are a lot of points in its favor. However, based on his conversations with Lala and with Shar and with Shar about Lala, I can also see him leading a movement, so to speak. Yeah. You know, we talked about Yakeato last time and how many of them became political activists for anywhere from one to a dozen causes. <laughs> and a lot of that being about their experience during the war. Mm-hmm. And I could see his life taking a similar turn and being about finding new types and helping new types cultivate their abilities, but about using those abilities for diplomacy and to further understanding between peoples rather than to be used as weapons of war. Mm-hmm. I could even see him trying to outlaw the use of new types in war or, you know, things on that vein mm-hmm. because of what happened to him. Because we saw him grow up a lot. Mm-hmm. In those last few episodes, and while activist Amuro is not a thing I could at all have imagined at the beginning of the series, I could see that now. He is hypothetically going to be a famous war hero. And this is not to say that he's going to be an emotionally healthy individual. Mm. He can be fighting for cause and mission-driven and a total peacenik (laughs) (laughs) and also have like raging PTSD and an alcohol problem. We mm-hmm. don't <laughs> we mm-hmm. don't know. Okay. What do you think about Shar? Assuming that Shar survived the events of a Bawaku, which is not confirmed except that you got spoiled about this. Right. I assume that Shar is going to do what he's always done, which is plot and plan and continue to try to bring his particular plans to fruition. He sounded very much at the end of Mobile Suit Gundam as if he still has a plan. Mm-hmm. He has a, a goal. He has an outcome that he's trying to bring about. Killing Kaecilia was a nice little digression from his grand master plan, but not really, but no longer the culmination of his life's work. He has something else going on now. And how he does that, I'm not entirely certain. We know there have been a lot of government shakeups in the Republic of Xeon. Whether or not he's even still tied to the Republic of Xeon, who knows, though it is where he knows people and has connections and has name recognition, 
It's very likely that whatever his plot, it requires him to amass a lot of power. And whether he does that through like money, like becoming a wealthy industrialist or something, or <laughs> through politics, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he stays in the military. Okay. Because I think now that it's a republic, uh, now that it's not wartime, the military doesn't really seem like the place to be to make those kinds of things happen. Unless he wants to lead a coup, but that feels uh, a little more direct Mm -hmm. than is Char's style. Mm -hmm. Okay. Speaking of the Republic of Xeon, what do you think comes next for Xeon after losing the war? I have no idea how much of this we will even see. (laughs) Some of it might get hinted at. We're jumping so much time ahead that how much of the aftermath even remains, that's a question. Mm Mm-hmm. I imagine it will follow a similar trajectory to a lot of what happened in Japan, which is to say war crimes trials, purging the government of certain officials who were implicated in war crimes and in the push to go to war and stay in the war. I do think they're going to follow the post-World War II Japan trajectory rather than the post-World War I Germany trajectory. Okay, so economic prosperity... um Trying to revamp the society. And a government that's mostly focused on order and stability rather than major social progress. Yes. And somewhat less punitive. Mm-hmm. It does feel like the Zabi clan make for very excellent scapegoats at this point. Especially since they're mostly already dead. <laughs> Convenient, that. Well, and a few you know, ministers and top uh, army officials get purged and mm-hmm. they lose everything they took over and they already lost one colony because they used it as a weapon right so yeah back at garma's funeral when we watched that you pointed out that everybody up on the dais was wearing a military uniform that this was fundamentally a military government Mm -hmm. so it's fair to imagine that most of those people are out and the vestigial civilian government of the pre-Zabi years is probably reinvigorated, at least for a time. Because one of the things you have to remember about the post-war Japanese government is that all of those purged officials were only purged for a while, and some of them did come back. And many of them were replaced by a chosen successor or, you know, someone who held more or less the same positions but was not tainted by their participation in that government. The bans that they placed on those officials had specific lengths of time. So you were banned for 15 years or you were banned for 20 years. But once that time was up, you could theoretically go back into government if you wanted. And Mm -hmm. quite a few of them did. The Japanese national government in the 80s was both firmly dominated by one party, the LDP or Liberal Democratic Party, fairly conservative in its outlook and riven with scandals. Which brings us to the Federation. What do you think happens to the Federation after the war? I confess I hadn't really thought about the Federation because as the winners, I sort of pictured them just going on as they were Mm -hmm. with very few changes. Although the senior leadership, at least the senior battlefield leadership, was completely wiped out. But since they're not at war anymore, fair shrug. Yeah. Sad, but not devastating in that way. And most of their political leaders would have been back in Jaburo, would have been on other ships. They would not have been in the thick of it. So that, you know, board of old men <laughs> giving Brighton Mirai orders, those guys probably got through mostly okay. Mm-hmm. And so now it's an opportunity for them to reestablish control over the huge portions of Earth and space that they lost during the war. 
And there are refugees to resettle. There's plenty of land on Earth that was ravaged by the war. There are certainly some questions hanging over everything about how did this happen in the first place? And is there anything we should change now to prevent it happening again? Mm -hmm. The zombies would have us believe that democracy (laughs) is what (laughs) made the Federation so ineffective. Democracy uh, coupled with a concentration of power and money on Earth and an unconcern for the lives or problems of those in space. Mm -hmm. But who knows? They are not reliable narrators. I think the show gave us a pretty good sense for what would have happened with new types as a phenomenon had Xeon triumphed in the war. I think it's pretty clear what exactly the Zabi's plans for new types were. What is the Federation going to do about new types? I hope they thought of it already because they knew that new types existed. We could tell based on some of their interactions with Amuro that they strongly suspected or knew right out that he was a new type and had some indication of what new types were. Mm -hmm. Whether they had thought beyond the battlefield implications of that, uh, who knows? People are dumb sometimes. (laughs) People are often dumb when it is narratively convenient for them to be dumb. What they ought to do about new types is nothing. (laughs) But, uh-huh. <laughs> but it's time for us to talk about the butts. <laughs> Nobody had good butts because this was a show from the 70s. <laughs> Everyone's got skinny hips and no butt. <laughs> what do you think are the implications going forward for butts? <laughs> I think they are bound to improve. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Invest in butts. <laughs> They're only going to expand <laughs> into the asset bubble. He shouldn't be, but Tom is very proud of that pun. I think I should be. Well, that, I guess, depends on one's opinion of puns. Do you deny that by the standard of puns, that was a good one? Here's the thing about puns. Mostly, I don't like them, but I'm always impressed by how quickly you think of them. (laughs) They just pop in your mind immediately. (laughs) Your superpower is thinking of puns instantaneously. I. This is definitely not a compliment because <laughs> you're basically saying, man, you are doing really bad work, but you're just doing it so quickly. <laughs> well, but I'm not sure I would find, like, let's be fair, most puns I don't find laugh out loud funny. Mm-hmm. Very occasionally you make me laugh, right? My response to most of your puns is... <laughs> Oh, but that's me. Some people love puns. I don't hold it against other people. You just, you know, deserve a different audience. We need to bring in a guest host, someone who really appreciates puns. Their only job is to laugh. A laugh track of one, just for me. So this is perhaps the most important question of all. What do you think comes next for mobile suits? I keep getting stuck because it's hard for me to picture what the conflict is in Zeta. Mm-hmm. Like, who's fighting who and why? Mm-hmm. And without knowing that, how can I possibly speculate about what they're using the mobile suits for or what the mobile suits are like? Do you have any theories about that conflict? Well, like I said, I think probably shades of the Korean and Vietnam Wars. Ideologically motivated, limited in territorial scope. Yeah, and and a strong sense of them being sort of proxy wars for bigger entities. Mm -hmm. 
Wars that, unlike the world wars, are not wars of mass mobilization and a complete shift of the economies of entire nations to wartime production, but rather wars of a limited scope that are supplied by a permanent military industrial complex. Yeah, that's GANs. <laughs> Especially because I don't see them, you know, boarding up all the gyms and balls in a warehouse <laughs> somewhere and saving them for a rainy day. Yep. More and faster and stronger and better. Okay. Final question. I want you to imagine the sort of character who would be the villain and the sort of character who would be the protagonist of this sequel series. And they can include existing characters or new ones entirely. But what sort of people do you think those characters are going to be? It would be very fitting if they were each sort of like protégés of Amros and Shars. Because mm -hmm. it fits with the idea of like large countries influencing a conflict between smaller countries for their own ends. Like Amaro and Char are really fighting with each other, but they're using the, their young protégés to do it. Uh, I don't think this is actually likely, but given the way that the last series went, I would not have been surprised and I would have liked to see a like woman or girl protagonist. Someone like Lala, but a little less head in the clouds. Mm -hmm. Sort of a someone who strikes a balance between Amaroness and Lala-ness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And maybe we get that, but it's a man or a boy. I don't know. Okay. But essentially someone who thinks that new type powers should be, be used to achieve peace, but who is young and fired up by the injustices of the world and... You know, wants to fight, wants to do something active to further the cause that they believe in. Okay. What about the villain? So one idea, government created or government modified new type, specifically like experimented on and raised to be a weapon and brought up thinking that they are going to bring about like a golden age for other new types and... Like, new type messiah complex, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because we know the governments are still, you know, have their science hands all up <laughs> in new type stuff. Uh-huh. Or more or less the same thing, but not government created in that same way. But Shar pulls a Lala 2.0, finds a young new type, trains them. You're going to exceed even me. We're going to bring about this glorious time for new types. We are the next evolution of humanity, like kind of a thing. Okay. I think you've said some very interesting things today. <laughs> I'm really excited to watch how it all plays out with you and see just how close to the real arc of the story you came. I assume almost not at all. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> For those of you keeping track at home, well, we'll see what happens. And don't any of you spoil Nina on anything else. <laughs> I'm watching you. We are joined by a special guest today, our friend Edward, who is... Would you describe yourself as a professional voice actor? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would. Yeah. <laughs> 
So we are joined by a professional voice actor today to talk about the voice acting in First Gundam. And to prep Edward for this, Edward has not watched Gundam before, but he has been a faithful listener to the podcast. Mm -hmm, It's true. Ever (laughs) since we proved our worth. (laughs) And to prep him for this, we did watch a episode of First Gundam in the Japanese and then in the English dub. And the episode we chose to watch was episode 12, The Threat of Zeon, which, if you don't remember it, is the episode where Rambaral is first introduced and in which Girin gives the very famous Garmazabi funeral speech. Yeah, I am finally not a complete and rank Gundam noob. I've actually, <laughs> I've now seen a thing. Do you feel like you lost something important there? Uh, like a part of yourself has died? <laughs> You know, as I get older, I'm becoming more and more comfortable with trying to let go of of those things that I used to define myself by. (laughs) Um, And today, I enjoyed watching some robots fight. So I feel like I'm growing as a person, actually. There was a lot of chanting in this episode, and so now I just want to have a big group of people chant, one of us, one of us. (laughs) I've seen a lot of debates in the Discord for our patrons, on Twitter, basically anywhere the Gundam fandom congregates about the dubs, uh, whether they're worth watching, uh, people who are diehard subtitles people or diehard dubs people. I have always been a subtitles person uh, my whole life with very few exceptions. Same. That's the way most anime fans go, right? Like, I don't know that I've ever met a hardcore dub person. Oh, they exist. Yeah. They absolutely exist. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, But a vocal minority, I think. I think if you're talking about people who would call themselves anime fans with a capital A and a capital F, sure, probably. But in terms of people in the US who watch anime, I would bet that there's actually a slim majority who watch dubs. Dragon Ball Z dubs, you know, anything that's going to appear on Cartoon Network or Toonami. I guess that's true. Like so many Americans, I mean, the first anime I saw was Toonami stuff back in the day. It was uh, Dragon Ball Z and what else? Ronin Warriors, definitely. <laughs> uh, a little bit of Tenshi Muyo, but even as a young man, I was not really buying what they were selling. <laughs> yeah, even as a kid, the harem anime structure of Tenshi Muyo <laughs> felt weird. Maybe it's good. I don't know. I don't have a real memory of it, but I, I assume it's bad. I'm sure that there is a Tenshi Muyo fandom. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it exists, but I've never met anyone who was more than lukewarm on Tenshi Muyo. Sure. Did you enjoy Ronin Warriors? Uh, I remember liking it. Yeah, it felt like, uh, again, this is all a long time ago, but it's worth proving that I do have some small anime cred. Um, (laughs) Yeah, my memory of it is that it was like it had some of the cool uh, team aesthetics of I guess it felt a lot like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in some Mm -hmm. ways to me, which I was a big fan of when I was a kid. And, And what I really liked about that was the. Uh, sort of the interplay between like the different specialist turtles right uh-huh. like you've got your your cool nerdy machine guy I don't need to explain Ninja Turtles to you people <laughs> no, I mean um, I was like that and I my memory of Ronin Warriors is pretty similar like you had uh, some some fairly distinct character archetypes uh, and also I remember it going in some like pretty dark places that was Mm -hmm. a fairly dark series as i recall you may be pleased to learn then that the director responsible for ronin warriors would a few years later go on to make gundam wing oh which is very much like that in terms of the different specializations okay the interplay of the different personalities within the group and Hmm. then it goes to some pretty dark places interesting Hmm. 
So this was my first experience watching any of Mobile Suit Gundam dubbed. Uh, (laughs) Had to laugh at some parts of it. Uh, But I'll start on a good note. I thought Amaro's voice acting was perfectly decent. Thought it was this is good. Yeah, I I, I tend to totally agree. Uh, there were maybe some moments where the the one thing I would m- maybe criticize uh, about Amaro's uh, English VO is that he didn't always feel uh, sort of sunk into the hauntedness and the and the, like the battle fatigue that he's going through in this episode. That's not always true. I thought there were moments where he he was really in that. Um, and also just. Amra's got to do a lot of uh, of efforts in this episode. Like, there's a lot of the, Whoo, oh, ha, and that's really that's hard. That's hard to like yeah. put yourself in that technical situation and make it sound like emotionally connected and like you're not constipated. Uh, <laughs> And I thought he did a superb job with all those, honestly. I guess I hadn't thought about how hard those must be. Yeah, they suck. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed them and not in a good way during the episode. But, you know, they weren't terrible. Uh, And given the the difficulty of what he was doing, sure. Mm -hmm. Part of what makes that so difficult has to be just distinguishing one from another Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't just sound like a series of identical, undifferentiated grunts. Yeah, absolutely. The only place where it felt like Amro really fell down was he wasn't, he didn't feel dazed, he didn't feel haunted, except, you know, towards the very end, I think he had a little bit of that coming in. Yeah, to me, it felt more like it was sort of in and out. In in some parts, towards the beginning, he had it, and in some parts, he didn't. I'd actually love to... um, Take a step back a little from the, the dub, if this is okay, and talk mm-hmm. about the um, uh, and talk about the Japanese voice actors. Absolutely, sort of talk yeah. about what we like there. One of the reasons I love subs is that I can't tell if the voice acting is bad. Totally, yes, absolutely. I uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes it a lot easier to focus on um, uh, on the text, right? Uh, but, but I think there's you know risk of uh, of losing something there too sometimes. And, and I have to say there were uh, there were Japanese voice actors I liked more than others. Do you want to tell us who did you like the most? Yeah, and who did sure. you think was the weakest? Yeah, totally. Um, the episode started off really strong for me. I thought that um, I really like original Japanese Garma's um, note to his father. There was a there was sort of a light touch and a and a simplicity in his delivery that I really responded to. I was like, oh yeah, I, you know, and, and this is me coming into it not having any attachment to Garma whatsoever. This is the first episode I've seen, and I know, like, I've listened to the pod. I know basically who he is. I know he's dead, but uh, the 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 quality of that performance uh, really, uh, I had some buy in there, and I actually also really liked uh, Sovereign Degwin Zabi is mm-hmm. his name. Tom's nodding. Good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, who only has like a line and a half, but there was something I found super embodied uh, about like like he's he's drawn as a big a big old shaved gorilla of a man, uh, and there was a real like weight and depth to that performance that I uh, that I responded to, um, and a a bone deep feeling of just tiredness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which he which he gets across again. The animation working in concert with like a line and a half from this actor. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, I know you're, I know you're a bad Nazi man, but also like I, I see you as a person in this moment, and, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and that's pretty cool. Um, there's also something about the way the voice works with the animation there, uh, with Sovereign Zombie in particular, that I want to get back to when we when we talk about some of the dub stuff. I thought Bright and Mirai in the Japanese have a really nice rapport. 
there's like an sort of an ease to that relationship uh, that I thought was really strong and which contrasted to me with uh, Ramba and Hamon, who I, I didn't really care for in mm-hmm. the Japanese. Uh, yeah. Talk to me. So talk to me about Ramba. I know he's a fan favorite. I know, I know people like those characters. Uh, they do. Yeah. I don't know. Like, what do you characterize their relationship for me? Like who, who, who are they? Because I know a little bit from listening to you guys talk about them. So uh, things that we find out later as we get to know the two of them more, uh, Ramba has been involved in Xeon politics and Xeon independence mm. since before the Zabis were even leading it. Okay. <laughs> there was another family leading things for a while, some sort of internecine conflict that removed this other family, and this would be Shar and Sela's family. Right, yeah, okay. Sure. Rambaral served as a soldier with Sharon Sela's father. His father, Jimbaral, was a... God, that's real good. Oh, uh, Jimbaral was a retainer of their father. <laughs> Jimbaral. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I changed my name legally. <laughs> Ramba and Haman, we get the impression of them having been together for a very long time. They are not married. Mm-hmm. She is not officially a soldier. However, she's always with him. Uh-huh. We know she has political aspirations of some kind. Okay. Uh, and that's part of what Ramba is doing when he's deciding what missions to take and how to go about uh, sort of positioning themselves okay. is to help further her ambitions. So, uh, Haman's got a little bit of an Evita vibe. I think that's fair. All right. Yeah. Well, and she's, um, despite not having any official rank and not being in the army, mm-hmm. she has the loyalty and the respect of all of Rambaral's soldiers. So when he goes out to fight, which is what he prefers, she stays back on the ship and she commands. Gotcha. Yep. And she has a very sort of commanding, charismatic presence, especially in later episodes. Mm. Ramba feels like a, a friendly uncle, a father to his men. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I, yeah. I, I was curious to know more about them because... Watching this episode, for, like in neither the dub uh, nor the sub, did I have a strong sense from the performances of what these two um, were about. You know, like I, mm. I, the text, the script makes it clear. There are some great lines that they have together, but in like I just I don't know. I found them both a little stiff. Uh, didn't quite work for me, especially as compared to Bright and uh, and Mirai. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the comparison we're meant to be doing there. That's the yeah, parallel yeah, yeah. the show sets up for us. Definitely. Part of that may be that you haven't seen the other episodes of the show, and I don't mean the other yeah, ones yeah. that Ramba and Hamon are in. Actually, I mean the preceding episodes. Mm, interesting. Because. The show gives us very few positive or even neutrally portrayed adults, uh-huh. especially adult men. So the fact that Ramba is fine, yeah. the fact that he's portrayed as like a, a very sort of normal, stable. Yeah. Down to earth. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. All of those qualities make him stand out actually okay. in Gundam, whereas... In our regular media diet, they make mm-hmm. him seem very boring and, and like a non-entity. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I had a sense in both versions of the episode that there was like, that he's meant to seem a little bored about war and everything <laughs> uh, in a way that, uh, that that can be evocative, that can be compelling in a character who is, you know, of high military rank. Uh, like the fact that they're not a true believer tells a story, right? Uh, but with neither performance, was I sure of like which side of that line we're walking on? Is this like someone who's bored because they're a sociopath and they don't care about the killing they're doing? Or is it someone who's bored because they're, they don't believe in this war? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think the other two things that I want to say about the the Japanese voice work um, were that uh, Char really comes across very quickly again in just a couple of lines, <laughs> uh, and part of that is the direction there too, because it's you know it's very it's evocatively framed, and his style is just like so on point. <laughs> what, I mean, white suit, pink shirt, red tie. Style goals. Yeah, sunglasses indoors. <laughs> in a, in a dimly lit bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Shaw really comes across, and um, and the Girin speech is great. Uh, yeah, Girin reaches this... Um, he starts off kind of standard, like he's giving a political speech, but he, re- he really... Uh, it surprised me by the end the degree to which he hit this sort of frantic fever pitch of nationalism. Um, it reminded me of... Uh, like one of the only good scenes in The Force Awakens where um, uh, Donald Gleason is doing his like uh, young Nazi rally speech for all the off-brand stormtroopers and just like shrieking like a maniac. Like Garen had a little bit of that in a more mm-hmm. restrained way and I really responded to to that. Yeah, I think that's the main stuff I wanted to say about the about this. Uh, but before we get into the uh, <laughs> the dub, this the even more mixed bag <laughs> of the dub. I will say part of the reason I chose this episode is because that Garen speech is justifiably famous. Yeah, sure. Um, it seems not being a voice actor myself, it still seems like it would be an incredibly difficult performance to give mm. and to to really nail. Yeah, I uh, think so, especially because you're doing it. You know, you're doing it in a booth. You're not doing it for a crowd of. Five ten thousand, right? You've got to, you've got to summon that energy that in you know in the on the stage would come naturally. In the booth, that does not. So you've got to do a lot of uh, a lot of work and a lot of work to keep it from going too far and becoming cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Which is what I felt like happened in a lot of the dub mm. characters. Yeah, <laughs> it felt- yeah. It really felt like the dub characters were hitting like either 120% emotion or 10% emotion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see that. And sometimes within the same sentence, they would hit both of those extremes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the first uh, indication I got of that was the Garma and the dub is so bad. <laughs> uh, well, he sounds I, about five years older. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't convey the same character at all. Yeah, which is... it. Like, I, I know that actor had done other Garma episodes. Presumably, they didn't get a different actor to do this Garma voicemail. Um, but it felt like an actor had had a script placed in front of them and had literally no context for who the person <laughs> was. It was just very, uh, very wooden, very held, I thought. Hmm. Uh, so right off the bat, I, I, I was expecting the worst. And n- not all of it was as bad as that, I will say. But then, of course, that's immediately followed by the interaction between Kaecilia and Degwin, which has that that terrible quality of speaking too fast to keep up with the mouth movements. And oh, absolutely. Then taking weird pauses in places. And- yeah, yeah. We can talk in general about that uh, phenomenon right now if you want, because I think it is. I think it just determines so much of uh, of how dubs like this go down, right? Um, yeah, Kaecilia is just her actor. There is just working. To make it fit the mouth movements, which is, look, to a certain extent, that is just a technical requirement of doing this kind of work. And here I'm like, I'm a little bit telling tales out of school. I, I kind of wish my uh, beautiful and talented and wonderful partner were here because she's actually done a lot of dubbing in anime. <laughs> Uh, Emily Wuzeller rules. If you watch some of the Pokemon <laughs> movies on Netflix, you will hear her very talented <gasps> voice. Yeah, did you not know that? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that. That is a requirement, right? 
Except maybe it isn't entirely, because it comes down to choices and it comes down to the direction, too, right? One of the first things I noticed about Sovereign Zabi in, in the Japanese was that his, like, second line or his one and a half line as he's getting up from his chair, the Japanese voice actor does not totally match the mouth movements. So... I don't know. Maybe like maybe it's not always useful to be restricted <laughs> to that uh, yeah. that thing, right? Because again, in Japanese, Zabi had a really big uh, like created a character in just a couple of lines, and uh, I think it would be worthwhile to I don't know. A- as an actor, I would certainly chafe uh, against having to to match uh, that animation and be tied to that. So I mean, my heart goes out to actors who have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Who have to be shackled to that because I think it's really hard. Sometimes I notice when the voices don't mm. match the mouth movements, but I didn't. I didn't notice in that situation. Yeah, I understand like why you would feel like it's something you have to do, but I think if you're if the show is interesting and engaging, like you're not looking for those kinds of. Maybe people are nowadays. Cinema Sins has done more damage to literary and film <laughs> criticism than anything else in the last hundred years. And we're all <laughs> just broken-minded nitpickers now. Um, but I like to think that, that people care more about the actual uh, core of something uh, than just being nitpickers. This might be a good point to relate a little uh, tidbit of information about the director of First Gundam and yeah. who directed quite a few of the other Gundam projects and is still working today. Cool. Um, so Tomino reportedly hates working with voice actors <laughs> nowadays huh. because voice actors nowadays are trained to be voice actors. And they've learned this very anime style of doing voice acting. Oh, yeah. He prefers to work with actors. Yeah, makes sense. I could see that. I, it's one of the things that I enjoy watching First Gundam in Japanese. To me, it mostly feels very natural. I'm not fluent in Japanese by any stretch, but I have listened to a lot of it. I've lived there. I've studied it. Mm-hmm. And the the pace and the way the conversations flow and the tones and the emotion all feel pretty natural. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel uh, cartoony or extreme. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You never have that moment where the the voice performance doesn't feel like it matches the character. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, with this dub, it certainly did feel like there was some uh, some lack of matching there. Yeah, I think the question of um, style is really tricky because again, there's a, a certain amount of uh, obligation to the genre to the style that maybe is real and maybe is just felt. I think it's a combination of the two. Um, I certainly am more interested in in people uh, giving performances that are down to earth and grounded in <laughs> given circumstances and motivations than I am in them doing an anime voice. I had a, I almost thought about doing a fake bad anime voice right there for a minute, but then I decided not to. So you're, <laughs> you're all welcome. <laughs> Listen, knowing knowing our fans, we're going to get a lot of requests for Edward doing an anime voice. Oh God! Again, I'm such a fraud. I haven't done any anime. I'm a I am a different kind of actor. <laughs> um, shout outs to uh, the uh, 
I don't even know how to describe him. The like lieutenant on Rambaral's bridge. Oh, yeah. Sub. <laughs> oh my God. His, name is, his name is Clamp. Clamp, the dude <laughs> with the helmet. Yep. You want a little voice? Because this guy was talking about how uh, there's, uh, oh, there's an enemy ship on the horizon. And oh, it yeah. really fits the animation of the character who is the, the dweebiest little <laughs> dude I ever have seen. But I don't know that I needed him to sound like this necessarily. I think it might have been a little too much. I just thought it slipped a little into Skeletor-esque, like, <laughs> <laughs> got a little, like, <laughs> high-pitched. And... Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah. it seemed like they gave, they had two characters with mustaches, and they gave them the two mustache voices. Yeah, yeah. They gave them, <laughs> and they gave them, <laughs> oh, yep. we didn't hear Kai. <laughs> Uh, we didn't get to true. hear Kai's voice acting in English. Well, maybe we'll watch another episode after this. <laughs> um, well, and I thought Hammond's voice actor in English sounded kind of like she was going for a witchy thing. I feel like she was going for sultry, but got stuck at witchy. So here's my thing with Hammond in the dub. I don't know what she was going for. She was <laughs> all over the place to me. And here's why. I don't know where she was locating her voice. Because you know, a a person or an actor has many registers, right? And and we talk about this in classical training and in Shakespeare training and Linklater, a very short version is you, you can locate your voice Anywhere on a spectrum, from up here, sort of light and airy, I'm in, I'm in my head voice right now. It's kind of, you think about it being centered between your eyes, in your forehead, um, at the top of things here, and you can, you can move down to um, uh, like speaking with your mouth, and it's sort of very forward and direct, but also still like pitched a little higher. That registers higher. You go down to your chest, and you get sort of a, a, a richer but still strong sound, and Obviously, you can go all the way down and, uh, into your gut, into your groin, into that deeper register down here. And it says a lot about what the character is like and how they carry themselves and, and who they are. And I, listening to Haman, I heard like four distinctly different choices at different <laughs> points in the episode. So I just had no idea who she was. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, she was the only person I really noticed that with. There were other issues uh, with other characters, for sure, but like I had the sense, and this is a first episode, so presumably the, this actor was trying to get a feel for the character, and I felt mm-hmm. them working that out, sadly not in rehearsal, but in the, uh, in the finished product there. Hmm. And Rambaral just seemed uh, on, the, on the wrong side of that board line in the dub. Also working a little too hard to do the kind of rough, scratchy voice. <laughs> like It felt very put on. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked up that voice actor. I can't mm. remember his name now, but he's done a ton of work since then. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I recognized it. Yeah. Not, not just because he was doing that character type, but the, the voice itself felt familiar. You mentioned noticing another couple of issues. Which other things did you notice? Um, ooh, let's see here. Uh, in general throughout the episode? Yeah. yeah. Mm, the little the little robot ball sounds terrifying. Yes. <laughs> Haro. That was of all the voices, that was the one that bothered me the most. <laughs> Cuz it it didn't sound like a robot anymore. It just sounded like a human voice. It just sounded like someone had, yeah, someone had put like a human head yeah. in there and it was just <laughs> Yeah, bad bad call on that, I have to say. Just creepy. I would not want to hang out with that soccer ball. That would be no good. <laughs> 
Yeah, between the <laughs> between the Giran speech and Haro, I'm like, oh, J.J. Abrams, Force Awakens. Is he is he a Gundam fan? <laughs> <laughs> Probably You're eating Tomino's lunch there. It seems to me. Uh, what else? Uh, we talked about Amaro. I I still feel like Amaro is pretty solid. Um, I think Bright's bad. I think Bright <laughs> is quite bad in the dub. Uh, that felt like another case of trying to play a type, like trying to trying to just be a voice that like was rigid and commanding. Um, which is a bummer because that's a much more nuanced character than that. Like, mm-hmm. Bright's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't get any of the sense of the of the exhaustion that I think is, mm-hmm. um, you know, even just from having listened to the the podcast, that's where most of my knowledge of the story is coming from. Like, Bright's tired, <laughs> I think. Yeah, well, Every, everyone is, but Bright and Amaro in particular, right? Um, yeah, and I just, the voice actor for the dub felt too old and felt like uh, they were not leaning at all or even, like, acknowledging the, the fact of, Bright's exhaustion. Even in that this. scene where he goes to his quarters yeah. to rest because he's exhausted. Yeah, even there. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, do you have any other thoughts about Bright, you two? Well, like you were talking about the nice back and forth between Bright and Mirai mm. in the Japanese language voiceover. And it did feel like we lost that completely. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I thought Bright was the worst offender in terms of the emotions going from zero to 100 and then mm. back down again. And that happened a lot in those interactions with Mirai. Yeah, I think that's I where we lose a lot of that subtlety and the nuance and that he cares about her and she cares about him. And no, it's just... Have the engines been fixed? Yeah, I can see that. What? They haven't been fixed? <laughs> now I'm incredibly angry about that. <laughs> yep, exactly. I'm going to my room. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that relationship was uh, harmed in spite of maybe my MVP for the episode, which was Mirai in, really? in the dub. Yeah, I liked her a lot. Okay. Um, she doesn't have a, lot, a whole lot to do in this episode, uh, but I found her really engaging and engaged. There's a, there's a moment in particular, uh, I jotted down a note, um, they're, they've just gone through the thunderstorm, they're landing on the little, uh, little rocky island, and Bright says something like, Mirai, can you land the ship there? Uh, and Mirai just says, yes, I can, in a way that is so, <laughs> so like, it, it acknowledges the difficulty of the task, um, but is also confident and is also saying, yeah, of course I can. <laughs> Come on. I'm a professional. Uh, when you can imbue three words with a lot, you're doing something right. And I really think that Mirai's actor was. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Bright really did feel like he was he was the one who was there most as a as a, a plot device. Yeah. In the in the way he was voiced. He was just there to hit his marks and say his lines. Yeah, totally. And keep the keep the ship moving forward. Yeah, it was too bad. Yeah, because Bright talks a lot in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm remembering now when we did the episode of the podcast about this, mm. and this was one of our very first real bright episodes. It's one of the first times mm. you really get a sense for who he is, what he believes, how mm. exhausted he is, how all this is affecting him, how he feels about things, how he feels about the kids on the ship. Yeah. That interaction with the, the children when they come barging onto the bridge with the vacuum cleaner and in, at first he snaps at them like this is a warship, not a daycare. It's such a nice episode in the sub because you really, I really got the, I don't know, I, I was I was with him. I was like, he he didn't mean to snap. He's actually sorry. Yeah. I, I got both of those just from the quality and the tone of the performance in a way that I didn't get in the dub. And then at the end, what I what got me the most for Bright was at the end during Giran's speech when he's like, I'm going to bleep myself for this, but this is... <laughs> this is some this is some zombie propaganda from a bunch of space Nazis who want to rule the world. Uh-huh. And you get that sense that 
like Bright is a true believer in the Federation and in this war. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a cool character. I'm excited to see where uh, where that where where all of them go. We'll see. Um, I thought Ryu was okay. Yeah, and Ryu, yeah. Some kind of important points in this episode since mm-hmm. he's the one doing the most interacting with our sort of zonked out Amaro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I thought he was. I felt like there was a little bit of um, putting on sort of a goofy fat guy voice. Yeah, the wheeziness. Yeah, exactly what mm. I was thinking. Like, there's a husky wheezy. Uh, like, uh, I'm a little. Like, I'm not a main character. I'm a little. <laughs> I'm a little strained all the time. Kind of thing that yeah. felt unnecessary. And then got dropped once he was in battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It wasn't that consistent either. Uh, but in terms of his like uh, engagement with the text, I thought the actor was pretty good. There was mm-hmm. just a little, a little more uh, of that, uh, that very surface level quality uh, to this delivery that was unnecessary. Um, also highlights some interesting translational changes. Yeah, I wanted to the, talk about that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was the. The dub is not just a spoken version of the subtitles. They do change the text. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the ones I noticed the most was in the Japanese version, Ryu calls what Amaro is going through rookie syndrome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in English, they change it to combat fatigue. Yep. Yeah. That was a great change. Uh, Also, right after that, that same scene, same shot, uh, when, when Bright... Uh, when Bright in the dub tells Ryu to just get Amaro in the in the robot, uh, Ryu says, uh, "Just throw him into the fire, huh?" Uh, which I thought was a great. I don't think that was in in the um, uh, in the sub. In the sub, he says, "Sink or swim," I guess. Yeah, right. Throw him into the fire felt so much more evocative to me. I, I wrote a note about it. I really liked that. Mm. Uh, so it's nice to see that sort of active translation going on because I think that's. I mean, that's super important, right? Yeah. Like uh, the. Don't at me, but literal translations are almost always garbage. <laughs> in IMO. <laughs> it's, more, it's more important to retain the sense and the feeling of a thing yes. than to convey the exact same exactly. <laughs> words. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and while I agree with you, <laughs> I'm going to say they should not have changed the ending. They should not mm. have changed it to Hail Zeon. Sure, yeah. Because this is a show that exists within the real history uh-huh. of the world, mm-hmm. right? For the people of side three of Zeon mm-hmm. to chant, Sieg Zeon yeah. means something. <laughs> it means they know they're acting like Nazis and they don't care. Yeah, no, absolutely. Changing it to Hail Zeon. That's weaker, yeah. Yeah, it's weaker. It changes the meaning completely. Yeah, totally toothless. I, I agree completely, yeah. Yeah, not every change is a good change. <laughs> it's just the the willingness to change, which is crucial to translation, I think. I wonder, you're totally right about that moment. Yeah. I wonder if that might not have been an issue with censorship or yeah. fear of censorship. Mm-hmm. Or even fear of being able to, like, would networks put it on? Yeah. If you're like, oh, and the baddies are basically Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because, like, this was in 2000 or so, right? Like, it's... Nowadays, weirdly, it's controversial to say that Nazis are bad sometimes. <laughs> but at the time, I think we were still on the same page there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's extra funny to me that they would make that change. Well, and this is a bit of uh, this is a bit of the like inside baseball mm-hmm. stuff. But they knew this was going to be on Cartoon Network right. because they had paid Cartoon Network to air it for them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So presumably they could have gotten this on. It was it, it's basic cable. You can put yeah. Nazi stuff on basic cable. Yeah, totally. Speaking of translation things that 
felt weird though. Uh, they removed the the from in front of Gundam. Oh yeah, that's so <laughs> it was funny. never it was never the Gundam, the Gundam. It was always Amuro is going to take Gundam. Yeah, so it sounded like Gundam was a person. Yeah, yeah, Amuro is going to get inside Robert and save all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, again. Not all changes are good, right? And that one uh, that one didn't didn't quite scan for me, which was yeah, I didn't like it. Um, Let's see. Another note I have: Shar, uh, Shar's uh, English voice actor seemed to be laying it on a little thick. Hmm. Uh, Japanese Shar like had that sort of effortless sense of cool. Uh, English Shar had a, a person trying to sound cool, <laughs> uh, which yeah, like it's so easy to see through that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Japanese Shar was a very successful child actor who oh. had a difficult time transitioning to ac- acting professionally as an adult, huh. and so went into voice acting. Interesting. Yeah, cool. Well, I mean, and I, I think he may, in fact, have been very cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, child actors, the coolest among us. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a moment in that uh, in that scene in the uh, in the dub that. Um, uh, and a couple other times something like this happened um, where there were moments when I felt like the actors were uh, rushing to fit mouth animation, um, even though you couldn't see the character's mouth. <laughs> there was a Char line yeah. where that, that guy who shows up at the bar with him, his shoulder is covering most of Char's face. Um, but we've still got the exact same like uh, clipped sort of hurried, harried <laughs> inflection and delivery that you see uh uh, when you're trying to do the the, the voice match, um, and there was a Ramba line that was that way too, actually. Oh, yeah, what was it? Um, when when Ramba is first uh, deploying the the goof, he says something like, "Oh yeah," he says to Haman over the comms, uh, uh, "You relax, my sweet." In like <laughs> again, like extremely relaxed. He was very relaxed. I'll say that for him. But like, I have never been less convinced by someone calling someone else my sweet. <laughs> than I was in that moment. It also feels like a weird translational choice for me. I'm pretty sure they're saying, like, anata. Mm, what does that mean? So, anata is a way of saying you, but implies intimacy. It's an extremely familiar way of saying uh, you. Yeah, it's tough to hit uh, notes like that with so English. It's, I feel like it usually gets translated as, like, darling. Like, it's something you would say to your husband. or <laughs> Right. This is literal translations. Uh, do uh-huh. not work here. Yep. You cannot say, relax, you. <laughs> yeah, no, you cannot. That is true. Oh, there was actually one other translation moment that I really liked uh, with regard to um, uh, Ramba and, and Haman. She says something about not liking not liking to watch him sitting around the bridge like a traffic cop, which I thought was great. I was like, oh, okay. You put a little put a little spin on that. Yeah. Put a little English on that ball. That was good. Yeah. Well, that works. I feel like in the Japanese, she said something about like an officer. Yeah. Yeah. But traffic cop just, I don't know. It, it gave me more of a sense of like, yeah, I really don't like to see you this way. <laughs> it's more evocative. Yeah. <laughs> I will just make one more mention, which I think is just a really interesting cultural translation. I think the dub mm. did a perfectly fine job with it. Mm. But the sound made when Kika, who's the little girl, sticks her tongue out. Ah. <laughs> yeah. In the Japanese, it's like, it sounds like it starts with a P and it's kind of like a ping or pion. I, I can't ping. do it. Ping. Yeah, that's huh. Nina, Nina got closest. <laughs> um, 
But in the English, it's very N-Y-A sort of sound. Yeah, sure. It's fascinating to think that culturally, there is a sound we associate with sticking your tongue out at someone. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, at least a couple, because it could be like a raspberry, right? But it's not. Uh It's more of a neener neener kind of of sound. (laughs) Yep. That's very funny. (laughs) I definitely think we'll need to check in on the dubs of all future series. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. Though I am, I'm still pretty hard on the subtitles side of things. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh my God, incredibly my pleasure. Yeah, I, I want to come back on. Yeah, we'll do another dub sub breakdown for, yeah. for Zeta and all the, all the ones to come, I hope. Absolutely. Woo. I'm calling this section Mobile Suit Zaku, The Origin. You may remember Gundam fan and longtime friend of the podcast, Sean Moran Richards, from previous guest appearances on episode 1.17, Unnecessary, plus the bonus episodes, Three Views of Gundam NT last month, and The Zoltan Show, featuring Zoltan back in February. Besides helping us out on the podcast, Sean has spent the last few months digging deep into the early designs, the artistic influences, and the visual references behind that most iconic mobile suit, the Zaku 2. I've been delighted to occasionally share my theories and act as a sounding board, but Sean has delved deep on this, looking at everything from obscure interviews with the Zaku's principal designer and influential movies, to digging through 1970s-era sci-fi magazine back issues, and dredging up television advertisements that aired in Japan around the time the Zaku was first drawn. I think the results speak for themselves, but in my personal opinion, Sean's work on this rivals anything available in English. We are therefore absolutely thrilled that Sean wanted to record a condensed version for us to share with you now. The full version is available online, and we will include the link to it in the show notes. It has lots of sources and some great pictures, so highly recommend that you check it out. The Zaku is the first mobile suit to appear in Gundam. It is the only Xeon mobile suit to appear during the opening credits, and it's the only enemy suit period for a solid quarter of the series. Although the Zaku disappears after episode 21, it does reappear in episode 35 and remains a fixture through the show's climactic scenes. To say too much about its legacy might verge into spoilers, but suffice it to say that the Zaku was and remains perhaps the most influential mecha in Gundam. For all that Gundam as a show reinvented the mecha genre, the actual RX-78-2 Gundam mobile suit is, visually, very much the continuation of a proud super robot lineage. The Zaku, on the other hand, is very much its own thing. And what inspired it? Well, let's let Sean answer that. So, at some point pretty early on in my current rewatch of Mobile Suit Gundam, which I'm watching for the first time with my wife, as we're following along with the podcast, which is pretty cool. Uh, So thank you, Tom and Nina, for giving me a good excuse to introduce my wife to something that I love uh, and helping me convince her to watch it too. Pretty early on in this rewatch, it occurred to me that Mobile Suit Gundam came out in 1979 and Battlestar Galactica came out in 1979. And Mobile Suit Gundam has the Zaku, with a big glowing mono eye and Battlestar Galactica has the Cylon Centurion with a big glowing mono eye. And I started wondering if there was any sort of shared visual ancestry for these two. 
But that led me down another research path into sort of the more general influences on the Zaku's design and where it came from and, and where it started and where Kunio Okawara, who was the mechanical designer, where Okawara was pulling all of, all of these motifs from. And so I ended up doing a whole bunch of research into this, uh, which I've written up on my blog. Uh, and that write-up has got a lot more depth than I'm, what I'm going to go into here. And it's got all of my bibliography and all my references. And it's even got like footnotes and stuff because research, right? But I wanted to pick out a couple of things to talk about for, for Tom and Nina for the podcast, partly as a thank you for, again, helping me introduce my wife to Gundam. So the three things that I really want to to focus on are sort of the general influences on the Zaku's design. Um, These are things that Okawara has pointed at as being things that he incorporated into the design. I also want to look at what I think is probably a shared cinema reference for both the Zaku and the Cylon. And then I want to talk about Barbarella, and we'll get to Barbarella, which is a strange one that I did not expect, but is very cool. Before we start, though, it's probably worth talking about sort of the usual story that Okawara tells about the Zaku design. And that story goes something along the lines of, I was presented with the task of designing the Zaku. It wasn't going to be made into a toy, which gave him a lot of permission to make it asymmetrical, uh, which would have been difficult for Clover to turn into a model. And he could use colors that weren't sort of like bright primaries, like the Gundam's uh, red, white, blue, and yellow. And the only instruction that Okawara got was... Tomino said, give it a single mono eye. We never find out why Tomino said that. I haven't found anything, at least. Uh, If you know why Tomino said that, please tell me. I would love to know. Get at me on Twitter, at flying underscore grizzly, please. I would love to know. That's the usual story, and that's referenced a few times. It's it's a substantiated story. That's straight from Okawara's mouth. So it's worth bearing that in mind as we go into this. First, I want to talk about the sort of the general influences that Okawara uh, acknowledges as being things that he incorporated into the Zaku's design. There's two main ones that Okawara talks about. I'm going to extend one of those. Uh, One thing that Okawara brings up is business suits. Uh, Another is a gas mask and sort of military-esque stuff, which I think is pretty obvious. For the business suit, though, that was interesting because there's an interview out there where Okawara nods the fact that he started off in fashion design before he got into mechanical design and anime design. Um, And he points that, that, that... the Zaku was partly inspired by business suits. And if you do an image search for business suits, 1980 business suits, 1970s, you get a lot of a particular shape, which is a very broad chest and strong shoulders and then a, and then a flared waist, which to be fair is not drastically different from sort of today's suits. That strong t- chest and strong shoulders are still there. Shoulders maybe less so. But when you look at the Zaku's design, I think you can actually kind of see it, right? Like it's got that really strong, broad chest, those very pronounced shoulders, which remind me a lot of of women's suits or power suits from like the 80s, where you got them big shoulder pads and then them strong angles across the across the body. So I can totally see that in the Zaku, which is pretty cool. Another thing that Okawara talks about, though, as an influence on the Zaku is that in a storeroom next to the workshop where he was working on the Zaku, there was a gas mask. And he just sort of says, oh yeah, there was a, there was a gas mask over there. So that, that got turned into the Zaku, which I think is sort of a gimme looking at the Zaku's head with the, the conduit pipes and the big grate at the front. And I think actually Tom brought this up in one of the podcast's research pieces early on when he was talking about, um, 
how the Zaku might have been perceived by a Japanese audience when it first showed up, and he was comparing it to uh, gas masks that were used during an invasion, I think, of Korea. Uh, so I think that, I mean, definitely something that Okawara has talked about being a direct influence on the Zaku. But something that Tom and I were talking about since then uh, was Japanese Air Force flight suits, and he sent me a couple of images. Uh, First of all, they look a lot like gas masks and a lot like the gas masks that he pointed out in, in the podcast research. Um, so you got the, the piping, which is sort of a gimme. Uh, there's some interesting goggle motifs or like shapes of goggles that they have, which I think um, if you look at a very early Zaku design that doesn't look like the Zaku that we ended up with, uh, the shape of its eyes look maybe a little bit like the goggles in the gas masks in these images that Tom sent me, which he didn't know at the time, which I think is quite interesting. But the other thing that, that's interesting to note on at least on a particular one of these images is that the pilot is wearing a white headband around their forehead with a big red rising sun in the center. And if you sort of like squint your eyes or soften your focus when you're looking at it and you sort of ignore the glass of the pilot's goggles, that white band with the red circle in the center, if you imagine that being black, it looks a lot like the Zaku's face. And in fact, it kind of looks a little bit like a super deformed Zaku where you end up sometimes with white behind the wet red circle instead of black, which is just kind of funny. Um, the other image that he sent me has uh, a gunner from a, from a Japanese plane with a gun that looks a whole lot like the Zaku's machine gun with the, the big round disc ammunition barrel, which is quite interesting. So I want to talk about a one particular cinematic influence that I think both the Cylon Centurion and the Zaku share. And that's Gort from The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is a film that came out in 1951. And I'm going to describe a scene where Gort is revealed. A flying saucer comes down and lands on Earth. A door in what is now tropic fashion slides open to reveal a figure standing backlit. The figure walks down and the figure is sort of in, it's a black and white movie, so colors are sort of, I'm guessing at, but it's sort of like in silvery armor, looks like they could be a robot, looks like they could be an armored uh, human, even. And their face is completely obscured. There's definitely a, a visor on the helmet, but that's covered over and closed. Figure walks down the ramp, and everyone is sort of staring apprehensively, and then the camera zooms in on the head. The visor slides open, and revealing sort of a black a uh, glass plate, a lot like the Zaku or Cylon's black glass plate. And then in the center, an eye, which I sort of read to be red, which I, again, black and white, I'm not sure. An eye illuminates and then sort of shifts left and right and then fires a beam out at the soldiers meeting the saucer. So when the beam fires out, that's where, where the similarities end because the Zaku and Cylon don't shoot lasers out of their eyes. But it's an interesting thing, right? Because you get a human figure walking down the stairs, and it's not until the last minute when the eye, not even when the glass plate is revealed and it's black, because there could still be human eyes behind that, but when that single red eye illuminates that we realize, oh, this isn't a person. And if you compare that to the first moment in the very first episode of Gundam when we see a Zaku, we have no sense of scale. This could just be a person in a spacesuit. There's just these three green Zaku flying through space, and they look like people. They could be people inside normal spacesuits. And there's a shot where a Zaku's head, very close up to the camera, rises up into the frame. The glass where its eye is going to be is black. So again, it could be two human eyes behind that and just reflecting poorly off the black of space. And then the eye illuminates and it shifts to the side and does a little bit of a pulse and gives us a sense that the eye has just moved and focused on something. 
And again, it doesn't shoot a laser, so it's not a shot-for-shot -shot recreation of the Gort scene. But it's interesting that both the revelation of Gort's eye and the revelation of the Zaku's eye hold until the last possible minute the information that these are not human eyes behind this glass. And I don't know Battlestar as well, so I don't know the first revelation of a Cylon, but I do want to say something about the difference in the way the Cylon's eye plays across its face and the Zaku's eye plays across its face. Uh, and I think it, they both have kind of taken Gort's eye as a single uh, shared ancestor and then gone different directions. Because where the Zaku's eye illuminates, turns to the side and pulses as if it's a focus, much like we move our heads and focus, we'll see something, turn to face it, and then our eyes will do sort of like a little jiggle, kind of like a camera doing a zoom in and a zoom out when it's on autofocus. The Zaku's eye, despite it just being one, works the same way that we do with our heads and our eyes. It's point of interest, focus on the interest. Whereas the Cylon's eye just sweeps left, right, left, right, in a way that betrays no particular interest or focus or intention. And that's the, the thing that I think the Zaku eye does, that it betrays intention of the pilot. It sees a thing, it focuses on the thing, it's going to do something about that thing. And the Cylon just sweeps left and right and left and right. And the Cylon's eye communicates an inhuman sort of intelligence. Uh, which creates a certain danger, because it's hard to predict what it's going to do. The Zaku's eye, on the other hand, communicates a very predatory intelligence, because it's also kind of like a cat's head as it's prowling through the grass stalking a mouse, or a tiger stalking a gazelle. Its head stays very still, which is the, the, the eye's focus, as everything moves around it, and just the way that the Zaku's eye pinpoints and fixes is much like a predator pinpointing and fixing on its prey, which is an interesting thing. When you look at theatrical masks and the way they're used in performance, there's the idea of mask and counter mask. So when someone's sort of like in normal play with a mask, they might look very bright and cheerful. But then if they drop their head down, often masks are made such that when the mask is at a different angle, it can look maybe a little bit foreboding. And so I think it's sort of a similar thing here where with the Zaku's eye, it plays one way, the Cylon's eye, it plays a different way. So they're using different masks with the same sort of visual element of that single mono eye, which is quite cool. And the last thing I want to share here is the Barbarella connection, which took me completely by surprise. When I was doing the research, I wasn't having much luck Googling uh, Zaku, Cylon, Battlestar, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, and wasn't getting anywhere. So I ended up taking a different approach and trying to find as much information as I could in interviews with Okawara about the design process, which led me to some of the things about the business suits and the gas mask. As a quick shout out, there's a really good article on zimmerit.moe, which is Z-I-M-M-E-R-I-T dot M-O-E, uh, about sort of the ongoing influence of the Zaku and its ongoing history. I highly recommend it. Not so much about its origins, but about its ongoing impact on anime, which is quite cool. Um, but I took a different approach, and I ended up ordering some materials from Japan. I got an exhibition catalog book from Kunio Okawara's uh, design retrospective that the Hyogo Prefectural Museum of Art put on in 2013 through 2015, it toured Japan for a while. There's an interview with Okawara about, amongst other things, uh, the origin of the Zaku and the influences on the Zaku's design. And he and the interviewer talk about this, this art for the movie Barbarella that came out in the first issue of Starlog magazine in August of 1978. And they point to the enemy in this Barbarella poster. Um, these enemies are called Leathermen or Blackguards, which is how they refer to it in the interview as being one of the key influences on the overall shape of the Zaku's design. 
Starlog was a science fiction magazine, a fan magazine. It started off mostly focused on Star Trek in the US and the UK, and then moved more general and started publishing in Japan. The first issue in Japan came out in August 1978, which is about the right time frame for when pre-pro would have been starting on Gundam. So Okawara says that it was the baddie, the villain in this in this poster, in this advertisement that influenced the Zaku. So I go back to Mandalake and I order the first couple of issues of Starlog. And lo and behold, in the first issue of Starlog, there's a poster for Barbarella and it's the same poster that we all know where Barbarella's in the center with the moon behind her. And then on the left, there's a legion of these villains. And there's a lot of things about these villains that just show right up on the Zaku, which is pretty cool. As a quick rundown of the most prominent elements, the chest and the shoulders are both very strong and they've got round shoulder pauldrons. The chest sort of has a T shape that looks a little bit like the Zaku's uh, torso T where you've got the the, uh, cockpit door just off to one side. Um, It looks like both the Zaku and the Goof. These baddies also have a whip coming out of their right arm uh, like the Goof. And they've got a sort of skirt underneath their torsos, um, which looks a lot like the Zaku sort of skirt armor, uh, which is a very distinctive look. So it's sort of hard to think of that as a coincidence. And then the last thing that really threw me in, and this is not something that shows up in the Zaku that got used in production, presumably because it'd be sort of too fiddly to animate frequently and cost effectively. But in an early Zaku design, uh, the helmet has two sort of fins coming up on either side, kind of like the rabbit ear antenna that you get on one side of, of some mobile suits later on in the series, but it's got these sort of sharky fins on both sides. When you look at the villains in the Barbarella poster, they all have these two fins on the sides of their helmets. And they also have sort of this brow that comes down in the center that looks like the Goof's more angular faceplate, um, whereas the Zaku's is a little bit more blank. The Goof looks a little bit more vicious in it with its angularity. So there's a lot in these villains that shows up in the Zaku and the Goof, and maybe even a little bit the Gelgu, which is quite interesting. It was just very cool to have... Okawara say, well, I looked at this and then it turned into a thing. And then you look at what he designed and there are all of these influences right there. And it's just wild to see sort of like the lineage or, or the, the, the path that this design took from business suits to, to gas masks to this Barbarella villain. One other thing that I'm going to point out about the, uh, the Starlog issues, the first three issues of Starlog all have advertising or articles about Battlestar Galactica. So it's very possible that when Tomino was looking around and trying to figure out what the influences he wanted for this show that he was making were. He saw some Battlestar Galactica stuff and saw the Cylon and said, hmm, they're doing that, and then took that visual reference and did something very different with it, which is very cool to think about, that that we've got two things that come out at the same time, they're probably in conversation with each other, and yet we end up with such very different characters that tell us very different things. And I'm not trying to say that's plagiarism because... Okawara and Tomino did something very different with the Zaku's eye than happens with the Cylon eye. And I think what they did is strong enough that, that it's really part of the reason that Gundam has lasted as long as it has. But I think what Okawara and Tomino did with that mono eye is as influential on Gundam and anime in general as the Gundam itself. You see it sort of echoes all over the place, and it's very cool to see what we now know is such a, a almost a trope design tracing those origins back through all of these things uh suits gas masks uh the the barbarella stuff um the cylon and gort from day the earth stood still and and sort of seeing where all of this comes from 
One last thing that I want to say is I think it's also quite likely that Okawara and Tomino were thinking about HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey when they were designing the Zaku, um, and considering how much visual reference there is to 2001 in the rest of the show, that seems like a likely thing to me, but it, it's sort of the obvious one, whereas Gort has a very clear influence on how the eye plays on screen. So that's about it. There's more of this in more depth on, on my blog post. If you want to read it, uh, please do. It's got bibliography and my footnotes and all that jazz. Uh, it's like almost academic or something. And if anything I've said is wrong, please tell me if you, if you know this or if there's something that I missed, I would love to find out. I'm not positioning myself as an expert, but just sharing all of these factoids and all of this information that I found. And that's, that's me. Sean briefly touched on how the Zaku's perceived unimportance allowed Okawara to get away with the then-heretical design choice of making the Zaku asymmetrical. And the principal way he did that was by giving it a rounded, spiky pauldron on the suit's left shoulder, and a wide, flat shield that covered the shoulder and arm on the right side. I would like to talk a bit about this, because it's an aspect of the Zaku's design that doesn't come up in any of the acknowledged inspirations for the Zaku. However, it does have historical precedent in the shields used by feudal Japanese warriors. You might now be asking, uh, wait, no, I didn't think the Japanese had shields. And if you're thinking that, then you are not alone. If you search for Japanese shields, the top results are all things like, why didn't the Japanese use shields? Why no shields for Japanese infantry? And lack of shields in Japan? And also a bunch of advertisements that Brook Shields made to sell tissues in Japan. <laughs> Japan, in fact, had an extensive, long-lasting, and diverse shield-using tradition. We have records going back to around 400 CE that show warriors in Japan using small, handheld, rectangular, wooden, metal, and leather shields in battle. These were used in close combat, in concert with swords, short spears, axes, etc. Around 800 CE, larger shields, comparable to the European Pavis type of shield, which is more like mobile cover, started to appear. You would prop one of these up using a pair of wooden legs, and then you would hang out behind it. They weren't much good in melee, but warfare at the time was absolutely dominated by archery, and these massive tate shields were mostly used to protect foot soldiers from enemy arrows. They could also be slung across the back, similarly to how the Gelgug wears its shield when the army was on the move. Both these huge tate shields and the handheld tedate shields remained in common use through the feudal period, evolving to meet the changing needs of warfare. And perhaps my absolute favorite depiction of how this happened is in an illustration from the Edo-era book Budo Geijutsu Hiden Zukai, which means something like the illustrated book of secret warrior techniques. In this illustration, two mounted samurai in full armor face each other across the spine of the book. One holds up a square iron hand shield to cover his face, while the other aims a matchlock pistol at him. Wow. We will, of course, include a link. <laughs> As a brief digression, the Japanese continued to use those large tate shields for infantry even after the widespread adoption of firearms by Japanese armies. They learned almost immediately that what stopped an arrow did not stop a bullet. The old-style shields were susceptible to shattering under gunfire. They developed innovations to ameliorate the problem, like augmenting the shield wall with bales of wet hay, but I can't help but wonder if Shield Chan's fragility might not reflect a certain sort of cultural memory of the fate of the shield in the era of the gun. That's really cool. Now that we've established that Japanese shields absolutely were a thing, it is time to get to the point of all of this, which is to talk about the specific subset of warriors who did not use shields. 
Despite the modern fascination with all things sword, during most of known Japanese history, warfare was mostly decided by highly mobile mounted archers. In the earliest periods, these soldiers would have worn armor similar to that in use in China and Korea at the time, but from around 800 to 900 CE, the characteristic style of Japanese armor called o-yoroi started to develop. That is to say, a boxy suit of lacquered plate and scale with a big ornate kabuto helmet and armored skirting. This o-yoroi armor is big, it's heavy, it's more or less an armored cube, it's not particularly maneuverable which makes it ideal for a mounted archer because you don't have to do much maneuvering when the horse does all of that for you. You just have to draw and shoot your bow. And the Oyorui was designed to allow easy use of the bow even while armored. The armor around the arms, armpits, and shoulders, especially on the right arm, which is used for drawing the bow, is designed to allow a lot of movement and is therefore necessarily not as strong, not as protective. As you can probably imagine, it is difficult to fire a bow while holding a shield and so these mounted archers generally did not carry shields. However, it is very useful to have a shield when you are being fired upon by other mounted archers, especially since the design of your armor has necessarily left your shoulders and armpits relatively poorly armored, or in many cases, entirely unarmored. And if you have any doubts about the lethality of an arrow in your armpit, just ask Torvald Eriksson, the first Norse explorer to encounter Native Americans and the first European to die in North America. So the Oyorui included a clever innovation in the form of the Osode. Sode are shoulder armor, and Osode, loosely translated, means big shoulder armor. The Osode were large, flat, rectangular armor plates that could be worn over one or both of the shoulders. They look a bit like shields that are just attached at your shoulder, and that's about how they were used, too. They were big enough to protect the face, neck, shoulder, armpit, and even the upper torso all at once and it could be slung onto the back for ease of movement or to provide extra defense while on the retreat. And I strongly suspect that these big, flat, rectangular shoulder shields, often worn asymmetrically, might just have inspired the Zaku's big, flat, asymmetric rectangular shoulder shield. Anime in Italy Remember way back at the beginning of the season, when we mentioned that Italy was the first foreign country to air Gundam? I do remember that. We did some poking around at the time and never found satisfactory information about how that happened, until an Italian listener, Renato Ramonda, reached out to us. Renato is a longtime anime fan and had done some research of his own about the history of anime in Italy. He has been kind enough to share his research and personal experience with us. What follows is a summary of some emails we exchanged with him earlier this year. For Italians in their 40s now, so born in the 70s, Japanese shows were a major part of television programming for kids while they were growing up, seeming to explode into popularity in the late 70s. They were airing older and contemporary anime, including titles that, having grown up in the U.S., I had never heard of until we started researching Gundam. <laughs> Shows like Jig, Daitarn 3, Ogon Bat, Mazinger. Among the first to air were Heidi, Girl of the Alps, and Grendizer. This had enough of a lasting effect on the pop culture in Italy that there are numerous popular and academic books in Italian that deal with anime's history there. I may at some point try to do research in Italian. I don't speak Italian. I speak Spanish. But enough of it looks familiar that <laughs> maybe I can muddle along between between Spanish and Google Translate. But Good luck. That's a project for a different time. <laughs> 
At the time, Italy had two state-owned TV channels, and they really needed content. Some of the earliest anime shows were drawn in a more Western style and were co-productions with Germany, which may be how those shows got onto the radar, so to speak. Uh, Heidi, Girl of the Alps was one, and Wiki the Viking. The story goes that shortly after this, Nicoletta Artam, a manager in the Italian national TV, visited a festival in Milan where they aired the French adaptation of Grendizer, which was called Goldorak, and spoke to Sergio Trinchero, Sorry if my pronunciation is more Spanish than Italian. <laughs> and he was responsible for kids programming at the network. He agreed that it sounded different than the usual, mostly American cartoons that they were showing and ordered slash authorized an adaptation. So Grendizer, which in French was called Goldorak and in Italian was Gold Rake, came to Italian TV. These shows really took off. It was a full-on craze to the point where the Grendizer craze was even talked about in Italian Parliament, because, of course, they were concerned <laughs> the violence would ruin young minds. <laughs> Count that as one more thing that made cartoni animati giapponese cool and popular. <laughs> in those early years, the first private TV stations were opening, and they also needed cheap content to fill their programming schedule. Since giant robot shows had proven so popular, they continued importing new ones as they came out in Japan. The management of these private TV stations was generally younger, less constricted by old-fashioned politics, and less concerned, or at least more willing to risk and to fight, censorship. They didn't suddenly stop importing Japanese shows, but the boom seemed to end a decade later, in the late 80s. Although, Renato clarifies this could just be his perception, by the early 90s, he was a teenager, and most of the new shows were still aimed at young children. Content for teens and adults was available, but was niche rather than mainstream, and was on VHS rather than broadcast television. Think Akira, Ghost in the Shell, so on. It's worth noting that some of that cultural exchange clearly goes both ways. Uh, Monkey Punch, who recently passed away and is the creator of Lupin III, was clearly a fan of Italy. Lupin drives a classic Fiat. <laughs> Uh, the character Mami from Madoka Magica shouts Tiro Finale when she does her finishing move. It means final shot in Italian. Uh, there are a number of anime set in Italy, including the Studio Ghibli classic Porco Rosso. There's one about a Japanese soccer star, football star for the rest of the world, uh, who gets onto an Italian team. There's the one about the Vatican miracle investigators. <laughs> There's a couple of cooking ones that take place in Italy, all kinds of stuff. When it comes to Mobile Suit Gundam specifically, there is a bit of drama. It was suddenly and unexpectedly pulled from the air. <laughs> Enough time has gone by that the details are murky, and much of this is based on rumor, but it seems that the Italian company that licensed the show made some kind of mistake with their contract. On purpose or by accident is totally unclear. The story goes that Sunrise Bandai accused the Italian company of not fulfilling their contract obligations, which, to their mind, it seems, included commitments to support the export and sale of the full toy line and the model kits, while the Italian licensor was only interested in the show and maybe part of the toy line. They did not have the capital or distributor network to support the kind of merchandise push that Sunrise wanted, and ultimately they folded. This, by the way, is classic Sunrise Bandai international licensing strategy for Gundam. It's a big part of why Gundam's initial push into the United States did not work out. We'll talk about that more when it happens. <laughs> so Gundam disappeared from Italian TV until Wing, and Wing bombed in Italy. But first, they produced the Italian dub and had the legit masters to do that, so it at least started out on a legal footing. 
Uh, they made a new opening song in Italian. They did some localization, which included a few name changes. Amaro became Peter, for instance. Peter Ray. <laughs> the show aired on a network of local TV stations. Renato didn't have any sources for this, but said that as he remembers it, most kids loved Gundam and, in an important sign of popularity, people sang the theme song all the time. <laughs> it also had an aura of mystery. Because of the way it disappeared from TV, since most series ran on a regular rotation and were re-aired frequently throughout the years, and since Gundam did not have that happen, it meant you'd either caught it that first time or not at all. You had to have been there. <laughs> You know, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I grew up in a small town with access to about three broadcast television stations, and it was not an uncommon experience for me for a show that I was watching and really enjoying to mysteriously disappear from the lineup way before it managed to finish its run. And I can remember how, as a child, I would imagine all of the possible endings, where the show had gone, <laughs> oh. what had happened next. Oh. That kind of abrupt cancellation really does fire the imagination, and it gives a show a mystique that it wouldn't otherwise have. I did eventually track down some of those shows, and for the most part, the actual endings did not live up to what I had imagined for them. Right as I finished the summary, I was able to find a singular article in English that talks about anime in Italy. I will include the citation in the show notes. It opens with the fact that of all the Western markets, Italy imports the most anime and publishes the most manga. To give you a sense of just how much more, from 1963 to 2012, there were approximately 275 anime releases in the United States. Most of those were on cable or were direct to VHS or DVD. In Italy, over a slightly shorter period of time, from 1976 to 2006, approximately 690 anime were released on television. Wow. <laughs> More than double. That's incredible. And that doesn't include DVD and VHS releases. It doesn't include OVAs. Like, <laughs> it's just series and just <laughs> TV. Wow. The article is a great overview and worth reading the whole thing, but I'm going to stick to the author's breakdown of a few of the factors that contributed to anime's success in Italy in the 70s and 80s. One, the price of the yen was kept low to promote Japanese exports. This meant that anime were competitively priced when networks were looking to fill time slots. Two, anime had already had some success in other international markets, so it was a proven concept. Three, European companies began doing co-productions with Japanese animation studios, further demonstrating to the Japanese studios that there was interest abroad, and it made that interest seem more serious. Four, the maturation of television as mass media in Italy. More people owned TVs, there were more channels, there were children who had grown up with TV and with TV watching as an important part of their daily life. It also sounds as if there was less local animation to compete with in Italy than there was in the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. The author also talks a bit about the cyclical nature of the anime boom. Kids grow up with anime and adopt many of its sensibilities as they grow older. Their interest expands into manga. Some of them become artists and animators who have been influenced by anime and manga. Their interest shapes new shows and new imports. Then the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned that came up that might be interesting to read more about later is that the way they aired shows in Italy was very different. In Japan, shows were aired 
to be watched once a week, same time every week for however many weeks. In Italy, they showed the series sequentially, like we assume, but they showed a new episode every day mm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it, so you became part of someone's r- schedule. You became part of someone's routine, their daily life. And if all of your friends were watching Gundam after school every day or Grindizer or whatever, you had to watch it because that's what all <laughs> the kids were going to be talking about at school the next day. And if you missed it, then you, know, you were thrown off for the next one. And mm-hmm. it created a very strong sense of needing to be in that place at that time to be part of the show, to keep up with the show. Anime in the United States was a niche. Mm-hmm. Anime in Italy was mainstream, is mainstream. Yeah. Next time on episode 1.37, Second Chance. Movie number one of the three movie trilogy made from the Mobile Suit Gundam series. This first movie is called Mobile Suit Gundam. <laughs> Plus, what does a Gundam newcomer think of the film? Tom and I talk about the 40th anniversary interview from NHK, the demon goof, and how a long-running comic from the American Funny Pages may have inspired Kika, Cats, and Let's. Actually, this time. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at GundamPodcast, on Instagram at GundamPodcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, literal translations are always better, and so it should be called Agile Warrior Gandamu. Translators note, Gandamu is a portmanteau of gun and freedom on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. taste those new microphones but tom would just tell me that means i'm too close to the new microphones (laughs) (laughs) do not eat the microphones do not do not put the microphone in your mouth that is the worst place for it because in the interview Yaz is like oh my gosh I can try to fix all the things that went wrong because I wasn't here to make sure you people did it right (laughs) because I almost died yes well and he didn't get out of the hospital until like months yeah for a really long time (laughs) 
You wanted to say shirizu, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know what I want. I don't know what I wanted to say there. <laughs> With glasses aren't allowed to be comfortable. Maybe you should only record in contacts. <laughs> and I was like, mm, never mind. <laughs> That's okay. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown. I'm Tom, she's Nina, and today we are here to talk about Avengers Endgame. 